As we announced at our business meeting, our last business meeting, we will now be uh, taking the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. And it has been our custom to also recite the Nicene Creed together every time we take the supper, but uh, we're going to make a slight change on that. Um, Every Lord's Day, uh, it will be the Lord's Supper, but we will only be reciting the Creed together on the first uh, Lord's Day of the month. So what that means for us today is we're not going to be reciting the Creed uh, together today, but we are going to use our time together today to contemplate the biblical doctrines that are summarized in the creed. Uh, and you'll, as I'm preaching, uh, we'll have those, the words of the creed up on the screen behind me, and you, or if you prefer, you can, have, you can follow along in the uh, bulletin insert. I thought it good to bring you a sermon that will uh, remind you of things that you have heard before. You've heard of all of these things before. But I'm doing that for your safety. Uh, As Paul said to the Philippians when he said to them, For me, to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. So I'm going to follow his lead, and I'm going to say that I'm not going to be hesitant today to preach familiar doctrines to you, because it's safe for you to be reminded of familiar doctrines. And in particular today, the doctrine that we need to be refreshed in and reminded of for the sake of our safety is the doctrine of the Trinity. We, we confess that the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God, and we confess that the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation for all of our comfortable dependence on Him. It's the foundation of our communion And it's the foundation of our comfortable dependence. One commentator uh, on that statement from our confession, he asks this question. He asks, on what do believers base their whole relationship with God? Now, how would you answer that question? On what do you base your whole relationship with God? What's the foundation? He goes on to answer it in this way. It is this doctrine of the Trinity. God is one, God is three, calling us to bow our heads in humble reverence to His greatness and His glory. It's the doctrine of the Trinity that's the foundation for our communion with God and for our comfortable dependence on Him. If we have communion with God... The foundation of that communion is the greatness and glory of God who is one and who is three. Our comfortable dependence upon God will be based on the greatness and glory of God who is one and who is three. So, does your spiritual comfort ever get eroded with anxiety? You ever know something of that struggle? Could it be that there has been some neglect in carrying the doctrine of the Trinity in your heart as you walk into or have to walk through whatever those trials and tribulations are? Now, why am I referencing 
the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, that is because the Nicene Creed is a Trinitarian creed. It rehearses the biblical doctrine of the nature and the being of our great and glorious God who is one and three. But the creed does something else. It demonstrates the doctrine of the Trinity as the basis for our whole relationship with him. And this is a part of what makes the creed such a wonderful thing that has been passed down to us. Have you ever considered the Nicene Creed to be not just a creed of Trinitarian doctrine, but also, therefore, a creed of communion and comfort? Have you ever recited it with this in mind? That this is not just a creed of Trinitarian doctrine, that God is one and God is three, but we are reciting a summary of the foundation of our communion with God. We're reciting, in summary form, the foundation of our comfortable dependence on Him. This is a creed, yes, of the doctrine of God is one and God is three, but because it is summarizing that, it's also a creed of communion and a creed of comfort. And that's how I want to encourage you to think about it. When we... Recite the creed together. We ought to be sincerely from our hearts expressing reverence, or expressing with reverence the, the nature and being of our God who is one and three. But because of that, we also ought to be sincerely from our hearts expressing with joy the basis of our communion with him who is so great and glorious. We ought to be also from, sincerely from our hearts expressing with joy When we recite the creed, we're reciting with joy and with wonder, with amazement. What is our foundation? What is the basis for our comfort, for our comfortable dependence on him? So let's step through the creed in four points. And as we're going along, I want to encourage you to think of the the creed in 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 these two main ways. We're rehearsing these familiar doctrines. God is one, God is three, but we are also rehearsing and we are being refreshed with these doctrines which communicate to us the basis of our communion with God and the basis of our comfortable dependence on Him. So let's step through the creed and we'll do it in four main points. Point number one, we believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one God, not three gods. And in the beginning, one God created the heavens and the earth. And the things he made declare the glory of one God. The heavens declare the glory of God says Psalm 19.1, it's not the glory of God's. He is God Almighty. And we confess that His glorious almightiness is on display everywhere. This is a point that Paul made in Romans 1 where he said, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power 
and divine nature, we confess one God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So consider from the smallest scale of scales to the largest of scales, it all ought to provoke in our hearts a sense of wonder and amazement with regards to their creator. Consider the microbes beyond our counting. Consider the immensity of space and the galaxies beyond our counting. And consider who made them. Look at the ant. Look at the constellations. And consider who made them. Look at the engineering of the intricacies of life and the engineering of the intricacies of geology and cosmology. Look at the things he has made and bow yourself with awe before him as you contemplate the one and only God immutable, the one and only God immense, the one and only God eternal and incomprehensible. Look Look at the finite creation and contemplate its infinite creator. Look at the nature of the things he's made. Look at the composition of the things he's made. Look at the relationships of all of the things that he has made. And from that, contemplate the glory of his infinite, eternal and incomprehensible power and wisdom. What about the unseen realms? And the unseen spiritual beings who have a knowledge and who have power, who have capacities that far excel our own. God made them. Oh, what incomprehensible power belongs to him. What incomprehensible wisdom, glory, power belong to him. He made even them, the host of heaven, the angels, some of them who have fallen irretrievably into condemnable corruption and rebellion. But whether they are righteous spiritual beings or now evil spiritual beings, they possess powers that are far beyond our own. There are limitations that belong to us as humans, limitations that don't belong to them. God is the maker of everything. He's the maker of all that is, and all that is speaks to the greatness and the glory of His eternal power and His divine nature. This is God, who has also, by the Holy Scriptures, revealed Himself as God the Father. We confess God the Father, who Himself has no father, who is of none, who is neither begotten of any nor proceeding from any. And in the Holy Scriptures, it is revealed to us that He is the Father and that He has a Son. This, of course, is not by natural generation, but the Son, we confess also, He is one who is eternally begotten of the Father. Eternal Father, Eternal Son, we confess God the Father, who eternally begets the Son, who, as John says in John chapter 1, John says, was in the beginning, and who was with God, and who was God, 
In the beginning, John says, and through whom all things were made and who has the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What we hear, one of the things we hear John doing in John chapter 1 is that John is making an affirmation of the full deity of the Father and the full deity of the Son. And you might want to interrupt me at that point and say, oh, J.D., you're, you're sounding ridiculous to say full deity because how could there be any other? But yet, heresies have come along in church history that t- attempt to speak of deity as if it could be divided three ways. No, no, that, that wouldn't be deity at all. So therefore, I say that John is making an, affirma- an affirmation of the full deity of the Father and the full deity of the Son, that both the Father and the Son were in the beginning, that both the Father and the Son were infinite, both without beginning, therefore one God who is not to be divided in nature or being, and at the same time one God who is distinguished by these personal divine relations. They are not human relations, Father, Son. These are divine relations that we are... Speaking of, it would probably be good for me at this point to specify we do not begin with human relations and work our way back to a biblical doctrine of the Trinity. You will end up in heresy if you attempt to do that. We do not begin with human relations and work our way back to a biblical doctrine of the Trinity. John is, in John 1, affirming the full deity of the Father, the full deity of the Son. And he is also affirming that God, there is one God who is distinguished by these personal divine relations. We confess the Father Almighty who has always been Father and who has always begotten the Son. It's not that the Father made himself Father to the Son, for he has never not been eternally Father Almighty, how glorious this is, how gloriously, I guess I could say, uh, how gloriously appropriate for the Father, who eternally begets the Son, to have this name Father in that divine relation, this divine eternal relation to the Son. But then something else is revealed to us in the Holy Scripture that ought to surprise us. We ought to never take this for granted. For this, this one and same eternal Father, as eternally having this divine relation with the eternal Son, He has afforded to some of the people of His creation the privilege of calling Him their Father. People who are not infinite. He has afforded some of them the privilege of calling him their father. People who are not eternally begotten of him. Yes, people who are image bearers, but who are not one with him in nature and being. He permits some people to call him their father. He has revealed himself with a name Father Almighty. And then he affords certain people the assurance of his love, of the kind of love, of the kind of relationship that exists just within a household. He extends that 
people who are not eternally begotten. But how can this be? We confess God the Father Almighty as He is in Himself and with divine eternal relation to the Son, but we also confess Him as our Father. But how can this be? How can we say that and not be blaspheming? We certainly can't claim any eternal divine relation to Him. How how can we claim any other relation to Him that would use the terms of family and love? The distance between God and the creature is so great, isn't it? And we owe Him our obedience because He is our Creator, but Ever since the fall into sin, the children of Adam won't give it, and the children of Adam can't give it. A familial communion with him, how is this even possible? It's impossible. How can we? It's impossible by the work of our own dirty hands. We come into the creation under the curse of this righteous God's righteous law. How dare we refer to him as our father? How can we, who are naturally the children of wrath, address God as Father unless by perhaps some voluntary condescension on God's part to make a covenant wherein He would provide the means for the safe entrance into His presence and the means to be there and to remain there under his fatherly love and fatherly provision. This covenant is revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. God was speaking to the serpent, certainly within earshot of Adam and Eve, when God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it was in that moment in the dark and miserable gloom of a fallen creation and a fallen humanity that a beam of redemption's light first appeared on the horizon. And that leads us to point number two. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end." In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, verses 1 through 4. And so now it is with wonder and it is with joy that we confess God the Son of one substance and of one power and of one eternity with the Father. I call on you by faith, by faith in the Scriptures. Behold the Son of God having the whole divine essence. The divine essence not being divided or split up 50-50 between the Father and the Son. Behold Him in possession of of the whole divine essence. Behold by faith by the, in the Scriptures... By the Scriptures, behold by faith the eternal Son, through whom all things, visible and invisible, were made. As Paul specifies in Colossians 1, speaking of the eternal Son, he says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. We confess God the Son. Behold, behold by faith, will you? Behold by faith the divine Son of God. Behold him immutable. Behold the eternal divine Son of God. Behold him immense Behold Him eternal. Behold Him incomprehensible. Behold Him almighty. Behold the eternal Son of God in every way infinite and in every way most holy and in every way most wise. Behold the eternal Son of God every way most free, every way most absolute. Behold by faith in the beginning the Son of God working all things according to His own immutable and most righteous will. Listen to John's words. Believe John's words. In the beginning was the Word. And by faith stretch and and reach for an apprehension of His eternal divine greatness and glory. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, not a creation of the Father, but eternally begotten, eternally the Word, eternally the witness, eternally the image of God, immutably, unchangeably God. This is the one who came down. This is the one who came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. 
This is the one who came down. Luke records the announcement to Mary. He says, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and we read of this in the second chapter of his letter to them. He wrote to the Philippians, speaking of Christ as the eternal Son of God, saying that Christ, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, When Christ made a claim of being co-eternal with the Father, for example, in claiming that He is the great I Am, Christ was not stealing something that didn't belong to Him. This eternal Son of God, this One who is of one substance and of one power and one eternity with the Father, who, as the eternal Son of God, is of all reputation... Paul then says, this one is the same one who came and made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. One person in the form of God and in the form of a bondservant. Paul says, he came in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, the brightness of the glory of God, the express image of God, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who is eternally righteous according to his divine nature and being, came down from heaven and took to himself a truly human body and a truly human soul so that he might fulfill all righteousness as a man and purge our sins as the only mediator between God and men. Here is the one we confess. Here he is. One person. Truly impassable God and truly passable man who cried out in true human agony upon the cross with a loud voice and yielded up his truly human spirit. No, he didn't faint. No, he didn't pass out. He truly 
died according to his human nature and being. His body wasn't the clever appearance of a body. It was a real human body. So his death wasn't a trick. As a true man, he truly suffered and he truly died. As a man, he truly entered the paradise realm of the righteous dead. He truly tasted what it means to suffer death, to have his truly human soul separated from his truly human body. And for three days, his truly human soul was truly in paradise, but his anointed and wrapped truly human body was truly in the grave. Therefore, his resurrection from the dead was a true human bodily resurrection from the grave. I I wonder if if you'll contemplate that for a moment, if you'll find that to be encouraging. Jesus knows what it means to die. He knows what it means to be raised again. He knows what it means to ascend as a man, body and soul, to heaven. That's great news because that guarantees something for us who believe. Does your assurance ever get shaken? You ever struggle with doubts? Can it really be true that God will raise me from the grave with a glorious body? Yeah, it's it's already been done. It's already been proven. God's already proven the power and the love to do that. And when we think of the resurrection, the true human resurrection of Christ, that's just the first fruits. That's just the first of a great harvest to come. We confess God the Son came down from heaven and became man. The eternal Son of God who had before reigned as king and head of all of creation, he came down to fulfill all righteousness and to win a kingdom. No, not the kingdom of creation. That was already his. But he came down from heaven to win and to secure the kingdom of redemption. So now he's king of both. Listen to this twofold description of the kingship of our Savior. Always king over all of creation, now king over the, king of, over the kingdom of redemption. This is from Colossians 1. Listen to how Paul lays both of these out. And Paul can't say any of this apart from the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Here's what Paul says. For by him, this is the Son, for by him all, uh, let me back up. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. We confess the eternal Son of God. But then Paul says this, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. All of this is founded upon the doctrine of the Trinity. And Paul then begins to make an application for our comfort, for our assurance, when he says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Christ is God, Christ the King of all, Christ as the God-man, King and Savior of the church. We confess God the Son, and we confess the Son the Mediator. So can we really believe this good news? Can we really entrust ourselves to Him? Can we really... Entrust ourselves to his work and to his promises, yes, because he is as faithful as God is faithful. What is the basis for your whole relationship with God and for your comfortable dependence upon him? It's the doctrine of the Trinity which teaches us that our truly human priest is in full divine possession of the glory and greatness of God. What is, what is the, what's the basis for your whole relationship with God and for your comfortable dependence upon Him? It's the doctrine of the Trinity that teaches us that our great high priest is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, most long-suffering as only God is. Is it safe? Is it safe to abandon yourself to Him? To abandon trust in your own works? To throw yourself at His feet? Or in the last day, will you just be proven to be a fool for trusting him? We confess by the Holy Scriptures that he is God of God. We confess by the Holy Scriptures he is light of light. We confess he is very God of very God, eternally begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Therefore, we can be fully confident that our Savior is abundant in goodness. Therefore, we can be fully confident that our Savior is abundant in truth and that He hasn't told us lies. Therefore, we can be fully confident that He is faithful and good to forgive iniquity, that He's faithful and good to forgive transgression, 
that He's faithful and good to forgive sin and to reward those who diligently seek Him. Behold, by faith, the one person, truly God and truly man, an offering for sin. The spotless Lamb of God. Behold, by faith, and reach to apprehend the glory and the greatness and the grace of this great high priest over the household of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the sitting priest, sitting at the Father's hand. He does not stand. He doesn't need to be standing with his with his shoes on, so to speak. He doesn't have to be standing ready like the, the old Levitical priest. Always had to be standing. Always had to be ready to offer again the symbolic offerings. No, he is the sitting priest because his offering was made once for all time. Not having to be repeated. He's the sitting priest sitting at the Father's hand. He was dead, but he is alive with an ongoing intercession for His people. It's the doctrine of the Trinity that teaches us that the intercession that we need and the intercession that we have, even at this very moment, the intercession that is ours is an intercession from the throne of God to the throne of God. How's that, how's that for comfort? How's that for preaching to you your comfortable dependence upon God. This is the Son who came. But we also confess that this is the same Son who's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And as it is appointed for men... To die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. We confess this is the Son who is coming again, but he's not coming again in a condition of humiliation. He's not coming again to pay for sin. He will come again in glory, and, that day, and in that day, He will dig in His winnowing fork. He'll dig it into all of humanity, and He will separate the wheat from the chaff. He's coming again. And in that day, He will extend His staff over all of humanity, and He will separate the sheep from the goats. Whether they are living or whether they are already dead, they will all be judged. They will all be judged by this king. I would encourage you who have made no profession of faith to consider that carefully. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul speaks of this gospel 
according to the power of God. And he makes reference to what we call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is that eternal covenant whereby the Father, according to his own purpose and grace, covenanted with the Son, Father Almighty covenanting with Son Almighty, covenanting to call a people with a holy calling and to call them not according to their works. Here's what Paul says. Paul speaks of God, quote, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now, I'd like to ask you, how's that for comfort? The covenant of redemption. How's that for comfort that this, this grace was decreed before time began? But then Paul speaks of the accomplishment of this eternal decree in history. This covenant of redemption, quote, has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So by the text of Scripture, by faith, behold, the Father Almighty and the Son Almighty with an eternal decree, but behold them with not just an eternal purpose of grace, but behold them also with their historical accomplishment of the decree. But in that, in that quote there, Paul began by saying that God has saved us. But how can Paul do that? How can Paul dare speak of the application of the benefits of that work to people? How can Paul speak of life and immortality being applied to people? Well, this is point number three. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So how do the Father and the Son bring light and life to us as decreed before time began? They send the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Who sends the Spirit? Is it the Son or is it the Father? The answer is yes. Is it of true comfort for you to know that the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit? Well, it will be of comfort to you, but only if you have the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, which teaches us that the Holy Spirit is infinite. It'll be of comfort to you to know that 
God has poured out His Spirit upon His people, but only if you know by the text of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is without beginning. The Holy Spirit is immutable. The Holy Spirit is immense. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The Holy Spirit is incomprehensible. The Holy Spirit is almighty. The Holy Spirit is most holy. He is most wise. He is most free. He is most absolute. This is the one who is the Lord and the giver of life. Doubt not His power to bestow upon you the benefits of this glorious redemption. Doubt not His capacity to apply the benefits of a redemption that were won a long time ago and far, far away from us. Doubt not His holiness. Doubt not His wisdom. Doubt not His freedom. Doubt not His absoluteness. Doubt not His power. This is the one who is the Lord and giver of life. This is the Holy Spirit who, with the Father and the Son, is infinite and without beginning. This is the one who removes the veil of spiritual blindness. This is the one who enlightens the mind. This is the one who renews the will and begets faith in us so that we may by faith see Christ and embrace Him. This is the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of this work of the Holy Spirit saying, when one turns to the Lord, the, the, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, behold, that is with a renewed will and an enlightened mind, with, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same glory, in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What amazing things Paul is speaking of. The application of the benefits of redemption, including the gift of sanctification. It's by the Holy Spirit that Paul can say that God has saved us. An eternal covenant of redemption before time began. This purposing of grace accomplished in history, accomplished in time and space, now applied to us by the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 10, Paul speaks of the necessity to call upon the Lord when he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And from that, we have to ask, how, how can we call upon him from our condition of death? How can we call upon him from our condition of blindness? Well, this is how. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. Most holy, most wise, most gracious, most powerful. They send the Spirit who, with divine power, blesses the preaching of the Word. They send the Spirit who brings the effectual call to the soul. They send the Spirit who enlivens that soul to see and to hear and to confess and to believe. How's that for comfort? Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, As it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. The natural man doesn't receive the things of God. They don't, the natural unconverted man is, uncap- is incapable of receiving the things of God. But there, there is this eternal covenant of redemption. Before time began, this purposing, this decree of grace that the Son would come. He would come into time and space as a man and do the work. And then the Father and the Son send the Spirit so that we are then enabled to receive the things of, the Spirit, the things of God. So yes, we confess God the Father Almighty And we in Christ may also confess God the Father Almighty, our Father, by His grace of adoption, by the historical accomplishment of Christ, by the application of redemption in the regenerating, converting, sanctifying, preserving power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel we preach is a Trinitarian gospel. Our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation If, we, if any of us here in this room, if any of us cry out, Abba, Father, that's because the Spirit of the Son has been sent into our hearts. But then this eternal purpose and this historical accomplishment and this spiritual application of redemption of our one triune God, all of this produces something. All of this assembles something and guarantees something which leads us to our fourth and final point. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. God is assembling that one great universal congregation of all saints from all time and from all places. We confess this from the Scriptures. God, by the work of the Son and the application of the Spirit, is assembling His universal congregation built upon the Holy Spirit-inspired prophetic and apostolic foundations with 
Christ the cornerstone. The word Catholic comes from a Greek adjective meaning universal, and so you shouldn't feel uneasy at all when we confess that we are members of the Catholic or universal church. You ought not to feel... That ought not, that ought not to make you feel funny when you say that. That we, by the grace of the Father and the historical accomplishment of Christ and the application of the Holy Spirit have been made members of the Catholic Church. The Word belongs to us who have believed the biblical gospel. The Word belongs to us who believe the gospel. That word Catholic belongs to none who denied justification by faith alone. We who by the grace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have entrusted ourselves to the one Savior and to His merits alone, we are the members of the universal congregation. The word Catholic belongs to us, and it belongs to nobody else. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, but you, this is to believers, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, listen to this, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. In Christ, our membership is secured in the universal congregation. It's a congregation that's made of some who are living and some who are already dead. Some, some of these, their spirits have already been made perfect. But we are members with them in the great GA, the great general assembly, the universal assembly, the church of the firstborn, made up of all whose names are registered in heaven, whether they be alive or whether they have already died. We confess the Catholic Church as it's taught to us here in the Scriptures. And this, this church, this kingdom has a banner, as any kingdom has banners, as any kingdom would have a standard. There's a banner, there's a standard that our Lord has given over His one general, universal Catholic assembly, and it reads with a sevenfold unity. If you'll buy the... If you'll buy the scriptures by faith, put your eyes up and look at the banner that is unfurled over the kingdom of redemption. At this standard that is unfurled over his church. You will read it and you will see that it says these words that speak of the sevenfold unity in which we are made and the sevenfold unity in which we are kept. Put your eyes up. You can see it by by the Scriptures. You can see the banner unfurled where it says, One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That's the banner that flies over us. In the General Assembly, that's the banner that flies over 
this particular congregation. That's the unity of our congregation. There is one universal or Catholic church gathered under this one banner. We are one body gathered by the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. There is one universal church united with the same hope and the same Lord. We are marked by one faith, one baptism, one Father, one Savior, one Holy Spirit. And the banner that's unfurled above the church, above the kingdom of redemption, it does not have any other words of any other kind of unity. And there are a lot of professing Christians today who seem to have forgotten this very point. So I urge you caution. I urge you caution to not give your ear to any of the false gospels that are being preached in our own country. False gospels that would lead you to have your hope in temporary and passing things. I urge you caution. There are false teachers promoting false gospels, especially in our country, especially this year. Listen with discernment as false teachers will try to present to you the the unfurling of some other kind of banner of unity over the kingdom of God. We must be very careful. We must be very careful with these things. We ought to remember what Jesus said in Luke 17 when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he answered and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. We confess the general assembly. But this general assembly, this kingdom is not a political kingdom. And anybody who tells you otherwise, they're not presenting to you just a political perspective. They're presenting to you a false gospel. So I say, let Paul's anathema fall on them as he spoke to the Galatians. We're not a political kingdom. We're not a kingdom defined by geography. We're not a kingdom defined by economics. We are not a kingdom with our hearts devoted to the things that are passing or to the things that would be melted and dissolved with fervent heat. We are not a kingdom devoted to the conquering or possessing of cities that will not endure. Have we not already read from Hebrews that our membership is in the heavenly Jerusalem? We are by the grace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit members of the great universal general assembly looking for and desiring above all else the coming of the day of God and of our entrance into the heavenly city. There's a lot of things in this world that have done this and that are currently distracting, professing Christians. Lots of different kinds of earthly victories, lots of different kinds of earthly peace, lots of different kinds of earthly triumphs. But may it be said of us, and may it be sincerely in our hearts when we recite the creed that we, according to God's promise, have our hearts and hopes set forward upon the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. The kingdom is built not 
by the sword, but by the grace of the Father and the blessing of the Son and the working of the Holy Spirit through the ordinary means of grace. And anybody who tells you otherwise is preaching a false gospel to you, stay away from them. You give yourself, you give your hope to garbage like that, you will be proven to be a fool in the last day when all those things that you put your hope in are melted and dissolved with fervent heat. And so then, when we take the supper, we do so in our hearts saying, until he comes, until he comes. Yes, we take the supper as we're about to do with remembrance of our triune God's plan. Yes, with remembrance of the accomplishment. Yes, with remembrance of the present application of redemption. But we also take the supper in anticipation of our Savior's return. And what a day that will be. The dead will be raised. And the wicked dead will be raised to everlasting and unspeakable torments. The righteous dead whose souls had already been glorified and kept safe with Christ, they will be raised up with glorious, with a glorious unification of body and soul. All the saints still living, or all the saints already dead, we will all together be united, together with one another, and then together with Christ in a state of full glory. We take the supper with hope in the life of the world to come. Remembering his return as we take the supper, this strengthens us for obedience today. And it stabilizes our souls in a present, very turbulent, fallen world. So what's the basis for your whole relationship with God? It is this most blessed doctrine of the Holy Trinity.